So tonight we get started, we'll continue our conversation on the Ten Commandments, and Michael and I have decided that the approach we'd have for this would be to do two commandments a week. So tonight we look at the first two commandments. Last week we told you that there are actually three versions of the Ten Commandments, the, the Jewish version, the Protestant version, and the Catholic version. The same commandments, slightly different order. Tonight, uh, we handle the first two in the Protestant, but to get there, we look at what we call the preface, but our Jewish brothers and sisters would call the first commandment. I'm the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt. So uh, the Jewish ordering of the commandments, that is actually their first commandment, which doesn't command anything, but it simply states the the foundation of what they consider the law so this is the context that we have i am the lord your god and remember that in the story there's there's lots of conversation biblical scholars history scholars have lots of conversation about when did scripture get written In, in other words it was probably not generally a written thing it was an oral tradition for a long time and then the question is when does it get written and people date that in different times but remember the context of the giving of the commandments is as Moses and the people make their way to the promised land so as they prepare to go in and live in a new place among other people this is the context for the commandments in other words when you get over there and people are doing all kinds of stuff this is what I expect of you And we see that pretty clearly in these first words. I am the Lord. Um, And if you look at that in your Bible, if if your Bible is, um, I won't say it that way. Your Bible should use all capitals for the word Lord there. You You may have noticed as you read the Old Testament, you will run into the word Lord L-O-R-D in all capitals. The, does anyone, is anyone familiar with the word Yahweh? Yahweh is considered the divine name of God. A Jewish person won't say the name Yahweh. They won't even write it. They'll write Y-W-H. It is considered the sacred name of God. When you see L-O-R-D in capitals in the Old Testament, it means that you're reading the word Yahweh. But in the translation and transmission of it, they changed it to the word Lord so that no one would accidentally say it. So when he says, when it says, I am the Lord, it literally says, I am Yahweh. God gives his name to the people, his identity. I am, which is important because I am means that that's the word Yahweh. So it. It almost reads, I am, I am. I am Yahweh, the Lord, and the God who brought you out of Egypt. So the the other thing here that is important, you've heard the word Elohim. Elohim in Hebrew means God. And it can mean big G, our God, or it can mean little g, other gods. So it is the generic word for God. I am Yahweh, who is your God. And what has that God done? 
I brought you out of Egypt. So everything that follows, all the commandments are a reflection of what God has done. Obedience to the commandments is to be based in gratitude for what God has done to the people. And not just some generic God, the God Yahweh, the specific, unique, the God of you. I am your God. Not just some random God out there that exists, but your God who has specifically done the thing of delivering you from slavery. Now, if you understand that, this is why Jewish people consider that the first commandment. They elevate that statement to such a degree that they consider it the first command. It doesn't have a shall or shalt not. It's just a thing they believe should never be forgotten and therefore starts the commandments. We treat it as preface, but we hear the same kind of thing in it. Right. So another way of saying that is the name of God as given as the address becomes for them the context of relationship. It becomes the initial word that establishes everything that follows. Two things matter in that. And the first is that this provides the opening word of who creates the covenantal relationship with the people. Some scholars talk about how the Ten Commandments are like a contract. They're like an ancient covenant between parties that essentially it establishes this is the terms of our relationship. And what's of note here is Yahweh is the one who initiates that relationship. He's the one that the people are going to then respond to in everything that follows. And that's important because as we know, as the people receive these commandments and seek to live them out, who's the one who's going to violate the commandments time and again? The people. Who will be faithful? Yahweh. The one who initiates this relationship is going to be the one who's faithful. So as it goes down the road, as the writer of the writers of the Old Testament give us the context for these commandments, the stories that they're going to tell after are going to show how the people struggle to live that out. Second thing to share with you, John Calvin in reading this points out that God in addressing the people relationally from the very first, Calvin uses this word, he says that uh, God is creating fences. And Calvin in his theology was very interested in the idea that the human heart is an idol-making factory. The idea that when we don't see God, we're tempted to make images of God all over as a replacement for God. And so Calvin found it instructive that at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, God literally called by name the one who was going to make a relationship with these people. And when God said uh, that he was Yahweh, and that he was Elohim, that he created the fences upon which human life would be lived between. And that sounds very theological, and maybe it sounds a little abstract, but I think it's very practical. It means that everything that you do in service to God is in service to the one real God, not a made-up and imaginary God, not a God who can be argued or debated out of existence. The real God who did a real thing is the one in whose uh, we live our lives. It's between those fences that makes it possible. And, and that ultimately, I think, is maybe best seen in this statement when God says, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. It is the removal from slavery. It is the, the transition from bondage to freedom that the people have discovered God's will for them. 
that he not only wants to claim them, but he's willing to bring them through the Red Sea to make it happen. And ultimately, if you read Exodus, if you know the Exodus story, the people of Israel, it is abundantly clear, had no skill or military wit or ability that resulted in their freedom. That ultimately being taken through the sea was a divine miracle, an act of God. But the question the people would wrestle with almost the day after they're rescued from Egypt was, who brought us through? Who is our God? And at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, God is unequivocal. God is concrete. God is literal. God says, I am your God. And God names himself. And then ultimately, we're going to see as we go in, I'm not going to move too far ahead, but we're going to see that this gets tied in when God makes the claim, I'm your God. And that means other gods are not your God. But we'll get to that. And these, these first two commandments, we, we think of them, we, we'll say more about this toward the end, but we think of them as abstract. When we think of other gods, we think of other things that we overvalue, right? Keep in mind that in this context, the people who are listening, they know the names of other gods. Molech, Baal, Asherah. That They could name them. They know people who worship them. And in that context, God says, I, Yahweh, am your God. And you are my people. And as a sign of being my people, here are the behaviors I expect. Here are the laws that I give. And for Christians, I think this makes sense. God's demands are rooted in God's deliverance. We live out of relationship. We live out of covenant with the one who has delivered us. And so as we move to the first commandment, which is what? No other gods before me. That's right. You shall have no other gods before me. This is a word of relationship. Sometimes the before is translated besides it literally means before my face, in front of my face. I shall not see any other gods among you. Um, don't put another god in front of me. Th that's the idea here. Um, I better not see any gods, even if you wanted to put it negative. And it, that's not about permission. It's about priority. You don't need other gods. I am the Lord your God. I supply your needs. I will not accept other gods. And so the first word that God gives as a commandment is a word of faithfulness. God has been faithful to people, so in return, God demands, expects, commands that they too shall be faithful. And what is, what is important about this is, we said this last week, the Ten Commandments, if you take relationship out of it, it, it just devolves into a list of do's and don'ts. But the only way you can properly understand the Ten Commandments is to come at it from this aspect of covenant, from relationship. And therefore, it, it is both public and private. Yeah, so 
this is where maybe we begin as modern readers to to get tempted. I, I think there is a temptation that when you've grown up in a in a culture that is dominated by a monotheistic idea, the, the one God, it's easy for us to start reading past these and say, yeah, I, I didn't pass by 14 temples to get to church today, right? But what's interesting is this idea is that ultimately when we stand before God, there's unity or there's a, there's a carryover what you do in private is the same as what you do in public. That the idea is that put no other gods before me means not just the ones you put on a shrine, but the ones you put in your heart. And this is where Protestants, I think in particular, have dug very deeply because at, at the end of the day, we may not have altars in our homes to fertility gods, but we have altars in every single one of our pocketbooks. Our, our budgets reflect our values. Uh, the, our time reflects our values. The, the places where we have put things in front of God's face are legion. And so there's a long tradition within the Protestant tradition of looking to the heart and finding in those private places opportunities where we have put things before God, where we've chosen something other than God. And yet if you're looking for something really practical to that end, I think Calvin was really helpful. If you're a note taker, Calvin said we can learn four things from the first command, and I think that this is helpful. The first, Calvin says that we can be taught that our calling as humans is to adore God, is to, to recognize that God is unique, that our God, not, not the great God of the cosmos, Yahweh God, the God who has rescued the people and who has called us out and given us spiritual freedom, that God deserves our gratitude and adoration. It means that we submit to God and we submit uh, our consciences to what God tells us, that we, that we live by the way that God has given us because that shows love and admiration for God. The second is that we trust God, that when God gives us commandments, that if he is our God, that we trust him to carry us into the future and that we trust him with our lives. Of course, you know, the word that we use for that is faith. Then the idea of invocation. I think this is wonderful. The idea that if God is our God, then he is the God that we pray to, that, that he's the one that we seek. It's his face that we seek to put first in our life. And then finally, Calvin says, it means that we are thankful, that whenever we experience good things in life, that we can be confident it's our God who gave it to us. And so if we adore God, if we trust God, if we seek God in, in prayer and we give thanksgiving to God, that we're fundamentally as Christians living into the promise of the first commandment. And the shorthand that our Presbyterian people have kind of used for this is the idea of worship, N not worship in the strict sense of what we do in the sanctuary, but worship as in the word worship means to magnify, to elevate. So worship in the sense of what it is that we as individuals and as communities lift up. And it may surprise you, uh, the Westminster Catechism, uh, did anybody go through that as kids, by the way? Yeah, probably the shorter, maybe a few of us had to suffer through the larger. The, the larger catechism has a very interesting section in the Ten Commandments where for each commandment, 
It asks the question, what are the faiths and duties required in this commandment? And then what are the sins prohibited by this commandment? And you think, have no gods before me. Well, that's it, right? No, they, they write a paragraph on what that means. And let me just read some of this to you. The duties required in the first commandment are knowing and acknowledging God to be the only true God and our God, to worship and glorify Him accordingly by thinking, meditating, remembering, esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, and fearing Him, believing Him, trusting, hoping, delighting, and rejoicing in Him, being zealous for Him, calling upon Him, giving all praise and thanks, yielding all obedience, and submitting to Him with our whole being, careful in all things to please Him, and sorrowful when in anything He is offended as we walk humbly with Him. Now, on one hand, only our people could take a five-word commandment and write 58 words about it. On the other hand, what does it mean to have no other gods before me? It means to trust and hope and honor and adore, to rejoice, to be zealous, to be passionate, to call upon Him and give praise. And it means to do that choosing to direct that at Yahweh our God and nothing or no one else. To elevate Him above all the things in our life that tempt us to give them our praise and our adoration instead. And our people are honest, as are the commandments. God knows that as the people go into the promised land, they're going to look around and go, hey, those people sing and dance to a fertility goddess and then their crops grow. Maybe we should try it. Hey, that God wears armor and smites all their enemies. That sounds good. Hey, they say their God made them rich. I like money. God knows specifically that the people are entering a land in which there are going to be other claims about what to put first. And so, the first commandment, thou shall have no other gods before me, in front of me. Keep me first. It, it is less about obeying a rule and it is more about honoring a relationship it's a covenantal command about remaining faithful and being rightly related that nothing else sacred will be placed before god it, it it's not just priority it's not just an ordering it's that god is exclusively our only god and very likely, as it comes next, the only one that we should worship. And so what sounds as simple becomes very complex when you move it from a rule to a guide for relationship. We'll, we'll circle back to this, but uh, the, probably the best illustration we have of this is a wedding. 
when Michael or I perform a wedding ceremony and there's a usually a young man and a young woman, sometimes they're not young, but whatever they are, they they turn and they face one another and they say vows, right? I will be faithful, love you, cherish you, all that kind of stuff, right? The, we're not giving them rules. We're giving them a way to live in relationship. Be faithful to your spouse. It, 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 it's not a rule that you have to follow to be married. It's the way being married works in relationship. Right? And so it's a, it's a commitment and a recommitment. And even if it were broken, it becomes a reestablishment of relationship. And that's the idea here. God says, you're, I'm yours. You're mine. For better or worse, we're going to work that out. And I don't want anything else in the way. Nothing else gets to be in there. And it's a command because God understands it has to be. Because we're not, we're not great at keeping one thing first. Um, unless generally it's itself. So, um, but does that make does that make some sense? The the difference between a rule and relationship, I, I think that is a I think that's a very helpful, almost revolutionary way to understand the commandment. By the way, let me just do the backside of Westminster here. Um, they wrote four paragraphs for this. What are the what are the things the sins that are forbidden? In the, sec- in the first commandment. Atheism is first, which makes me smile. Then idolatry, where we're going next. Omission and neglect of anything due to God. Ignorance, forgetfulness, misapprehension, false opinions, unworthy, wicked thoughts, bold, curious searchings into His secrets, all profaneness, self-love, self-seeking, Unbelief, heresy, misbelief, distrust. It goes on and on and on. Indiscreet zeal, lukewarmness, deadness toward the things of God, compacts and consulting with the devil, angels, mediums, slighting and despising God, resisting, grieving the Spirit, impatience. Skip that one. Cross that one out. And ascribing praise to any of any good to anyone other than our Heavenly Father. So, um, again, I, I think as you understand the context and what God is saying to the people in offering these, I, I do think it very much changes how we understand and how we hear the idea of having commandments. I'm really quick, just before we move on, offer maybe... An explanatory word. I, I think it's easy for me to miss why this commandment is so difficult for the people. So just put this in context. I just got the opportunity to eat food that was provided for me, good food that tasted great. I'm going to get in my car, which is going to transport me home to a place of safety and security where I'm going to flip a switch and water is going to pour out of the spigot. And I'm going to have all of it that I need. And I'm going to go lay down in a bed that is soft and comfortable. And I'm going to wake up tomorrow, Lord willing, and everything will repeat the next day, right? Remember that these people are going into a land where they see people with fortified cities, 
with water sources and food and farming and all of those things. And they're wandering around, sleeping on the ground, hoping they find water that day, eating whatchamacallit off of the dirt. And they sometimes would love to have a different God. They'd love to have different results. <laughs> so I think it's easy for us to think, well, that... Why is that hard for you? It's ridiculously hard because when, you're, when your God doesn't end with the results that you would prefer, you start looking for a God that will. And if you can relate to that, then you can see the many ways that we do that in our own life. That's when God fills in as the backup. God, right now the investments are going really well. I'll consult you if money becomes a problem in the future. That's a temptation of the human heart. Or, God, I've got this parenting thing under control until you get the phone call from the principal. Whatever it is, I think that we can relate to that first century awareness that, that when things in life are going well, those are the times it's hardest to keep the first commandment. And if that's you tonight, I hope that you might turn back around to reflect upon the ways that you can recommit to that task. So then... Where, when we seek other gods, historically, where's the first place we look? We look inside. We look to self, right? So the second commandment comes out, which is no idols, okay? No graven images, right? Thou shalt not make for thyself a graven image. This one comes with a lot of commentary of anything that is in the heavens, that is in the water under the earth, or that is on the earth. You shall not bow down or worship them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the sins of the Father for three and four generations, but rewarding to the thousandth generation those who trust and obey my commandments. It's not word for word. It's close. Okay? So this one comes with a commandment, then some commentary, warning, and promise. Historically, we've translated that idol a better translation, maybe image. Literally, it's uh, the word is carved, and graven image is the classic thing that we've said, uh, it, which is a fair translation. Idol is not a bad translation, but there there is a divide we'll talk about that kind of idol lets us off the hook for some things that image doesn't. So, having been warned to have no other gods. They're now warned not to make God small. I am Yahweh, the creator, who left you, who, who led you out of Egypt and didn't leave you in slavery. Don't make me a bird. Don't make me a clay stick. Don't turn me into something. Do not make me small. Do not equate what I've created with myself the creator god is not a mascot and will not be subjected to a physical object or form from the people and and because again this is the world in which the people live right every god had a corresponding figure there's a god named el el is a bull there is a god named baal baal is the god of storms got a lightning bolt right israel is unique in that they're the only re religion of the region that has a God that doesn't have a picture to go with it. 
Because that God says, I'm, you're not doing that to me. God knows our human minds want to, to make images, to capture snapshots. And so this command comes laid out in three prohibitions. You will not make, nor will you bow down, nor will you serve. And then we get into that exposition. I'm a jealous God. And this word jealous in Hebrew is only used of God. It's not the normal word for jealous. It means we are exclusive. Israel, you and me, we are it. Don't be bringing pictures and statues and things to this this deal. uh, That does not work. I'm a jealous God. I do not share. I will not be second. I will not settle. Not only will you not have an idol, you won't make me safe. You won't make me something that you keep in a building and you trot out when it's time to have a festival. That's not who I am. That's not how this works. And so, this idea of idolatry, yes, worshiping a thing is offensive to God. But making God a thing is offensive to God as well. And, and this, these are sort of the two faces of this commandment. And we get the idol one. We don't, we don't always get the graven image one. I actually think there's a principle in the ancient idolatry context that might help us. Idolatry was generally considered to be a help to the people. If you conquer the people, you would tend to want to bring an idol that helped you control them. It, it gives you something to focus on. It gives people an end to pursue. Idolatry is actually very helpful if your goal is just to get people all going in the same direction, which is, by the way, in our modern world, this happens daily. We, we use different language than idolatry. But do you know that uh, Kim Jong-il in North Korea has a birth story that he's worked on for like 30 years that involves rainbows happening in the day that he was born and all of the birds singing a special song. And there's a real thing. Look it up. Um, that is an idol-making activity that helps keep a population moving in the direction you want them to go. And when you've got the people of Israel in the wilderness, the thing that makes sense is let's keep them all on the same page. But this isn't any normal God. This God says, I've claimed you. You don't have the ability to make an image that reflects my grandeur. So, so when God chooses the people, God is the one who sets the terms of the relationship. And that's truly unique. It means that the religious leadership of Israel, they're not some mediator to God that they let the people in or they create the image that they can trot out so the people can worship it. God is the one who will be faithful. God's the one who's already brought the people out, and God's the only one who the people are called to worship, which means that the people are always subject to the temptation to replace something for God. And while God is perfectly faithful, over and over and over again, the story, the people are going to give in to that temptation to make something that might be substituting for God. And over and over and over again, God is going to call them back to that initial command, that initial relationship that he created, and say, I've been faithful to you, and I expect faithfulness from you. And we might miss the force of that, 
unless we put it in human terms, the the husband or the wife who's been faithful for years and years and years, and then the betrayal of adultery, that, that, that moment in which relationship is broken, we understand the force and pain of that. Now take that to the nth degree. A God who's been faithful and called you and been faithful day in and day out, and you keep finding new things to replace that relationship with, from money to power to fame to stuff to experience, Every time the people of God do that to God, they throw dirt in God's face. They take a perfect relationship and they soil it. And that's exactly what's at play here, is is that idolatry replaces a perfectly faithful God with unfaithful people. And and it's a sign of ungratitude and and all the rest. So historically, this commandment has kind of gone in, in two different directions. There's the obvious one, don't make idols, though that's rarer than we think. I mean, it's you're not going to go into most homes where they show you their idol in the American culture. Most churches aren't going to have some idol set up in their narthex. We tend to think of those things more as making something overly important. Um, we make idols out of things. We don't call them idols but we practice idolatry. Michael and I were at a presbytery meeting yesterday, sitting at a table full of pastors. We were talking about church stuff. Um, we were supposed to be. Uh, it was a it was a talk about church stuff time on the docket. And um, one of them says something about our our church building is killing us. It's old. We can't keep up with the repairs. Have to spend money on it that we don't have. And I say, why don't you get rid of it? And he says, because everyone would leave. They love the building. Is that a building? Is that an idol? When you think you can't be church without the building you've been in, what do you have? What do you elevate? Money, power. The, the church has plenty of idols. We don't call them idols. We don't build statues out of them. But we have things that tend to slide up into spot number one if we're not careful. That's idolatry. Our people, uh, Presbyterian people, the other side of this coin, they were very serious about this commandment. Keep in mind, they were coming out of an argument with the Catholics who loved art and statues and paintings and stained glass windows and stuff like that. So our people pushed back pretty seriously on that. And they said, none of that. We're not no pictures of Jesus. We're not going to do any representations of things. Um, I'm looking down the hallways. There's right above the uh, water fountain there. There's that picture of Jesus in the temple. So our, our people went into churches, by the way, when the reformation happened, our people stormed churches and it's a shame what we lost, but they burned things. They took pictures down. They took tapestries down. They broke windows. They burned organs. Anything they thought might have been elevated too high or anything they thought constituted an image of God. So that picture of Jesus, you know, that everybody loves, long-haired white Jesus carrying the lamb, it's gone. It's in the burn pile. Our, our people said, no, that's a graven image. Image. We strip the churches 
and we got rid of those decorations. Now, did we go too far? I suspect we probably did because those things aren't idols. Idols live in here, not in the actual thing. Idol is what you worship. And so Westminster's take, our confession, equates this commandment largely with proper worship and church practice. And if that seems odd that idolatry becomes a commandment about worship, keep in mind that worship means what you make sacred, what you elevate. And so, uh, you have it there, Michael. These are the things called on for this commandment according to our Westminster uh, forerunners. The receiving, observing, keeping pure, the entire all religious worship and ordinances as God hath instituted his word, particularly prayer, thanksgiving in the name of Christ. So I want to make that very clear. The very first thing they say is is worship. The, what we worship, not just in sanctuaries, but how we worship God in our lives. Then the reading, preaching, hearing of the word, administrating and receiving of the sacraments, which would be communion or baptism, church governance and discipline, the ministry and maintenance thereof, religious fasting, swearing by the name of God, vowing unto God, also the disapproving, detesting, and opposing all false worship, and according to one's place and calling, removing it and all monuments of idolatry. Sounds removing good, all of it. Yeah. Let's go. Uh, th- th- that would be the, the banner that they went with. And, and then the things forbidden, we won't read all of this, but uh, devising, counseling, commanding, using, any wise approving, any religious worship not instituted by God, making representations of God, uh, worshiping things that are not uh, God, uh, representation of feigned deities, all worship of them, service belonging to them, superstitious devices. That might land in the 21st century. We have some superstitious devices uh, floating around out there. Um, Corrupting the worship of God, adding to the worship of God, taking from it, uh, pulling up things under the title of antiquity, custom, devotion, good intent, or other pretense. (laughs) Um, All neglect, contempt, hindering, and opposing the worship and ordinances which God hath appointed. Um, I, I, that, it's tough to read a, a whole block paragraph there and to not go line by line. I, I would point out, though, how, ma- how many times things do slide in under the title of antiquity. That's not, that's not the way that we say it. This is how we've always done it, is how we say it. Why do we do it that way? Because this is how we do it. And it should be clear that the Westminster interpretation is that we have a living relationship with God. So therefore, we have a changing expectation of what God wants us to do in light of our culture. We can't just rely upon the way that we've always done it from antiquity. No, I I think that there's a significant call in that. Yeah, and I think fundamental to this commandment is the idea that if we keep our eyes free from inappropriate depictions or from undue attention, then we also have a chance of keeping our hearts free from distractions and deceptions. And and the fundamental question is, what do we bow to? Is it a thing of our own creation? Or is it the God who has delivered us? And, And the commandments establish the bounds of human relationship with God. The, the law, these laws are covenant. 
the first command is that God is our God, and therefore we have expectations that He will not be replaced or subjected. The second is, we will not make God a thing of our own choosing, a thing of our own controlling. We will not make God small, manageable, and safe. And in order, these commandments work to put us on the path of faithfulness. Now, uh, these commands set us, I think, toward following the rest. They, they set the stage for those that come after, the kind of do's and don'ts stuff. We get more of that as we go through the Ten Commandments. But that has to be based in a right understanding of who God is and a right understanding of God's expectations for us. Because otherwise, as we've said over and over again, they're just rules. And, and I want to move to you know discussion, questions, comments, that kind of stuff. But before we do that, I, I think the first two commandments are in some ways the most difficult for modern readers to translate. Um, we don't know what to do with keep the Sabbath. Next week, we'll struggle with that. I mean... The modern reader has some ideas about what that means, but we're pretty far afield on that one. But don't lie, don't steal. I, those make sense to us, right? No other gods before me, and don't make for yourselves an idol in a world that doesn't really do that. We don't name other gods. We don't have statues in Spirit Lake devoted to religious ideas. We we don't we function in a context that doesn't put those things physically in front of us very often so then they become spiritual guidance for us is there anything in my life that's overly important is there anything that i let occupy that top spot is there any way in which i try to manage god as my mascot or where i like the idea of of having a relationship with god as long as i get to be the one telling god what to do I don't really like it when it works the other way. I, I want God to kind of work for me, not be in charge of me. And so the, I think it is helpful to back up on these commandments and say, what can be placed before me or what can be substituted for God in my life? What is it that breaks or threatens to break the covenant relationship? What leads me to forget that Yahweh is the Lord my God who delivered me and in who I find myself and my relationship to Him and asks me to put my trust or my allegiance somewhere else, into something else. And that is far deeper than the idea of a couple of checkboxes in a list of ten things. Because they're never one and done. Have no gods before me and not make for myself an idol. That's every day I live. That is a constant struggle under which I try to be faithful. And understood properly, I think it is the best way to talk about our relationship with God and what God asks of us. Arguably what God expects of us and why it is such a struggle so 
Uh, anything else? Just one quick word. I, I think that this does have really practical implications as well. So this is why Christians need to understand that when we talk about the Ten Commandments, we have an obligation in a civic context to introduce folks to the God who we're in relationship with. So we can't just post the Ten Commandments in a place and expect people to understand what they mean if we haven't done the work to introduce them to the God who delivered the people out of Egypt, who spiritually delivered us from bondage to sin. So this is, in a sense, to these two commandments are reminding us that your calling is to be an evangelist, an inviter into relationship with God, so that the people who receive these commandments can understand them rightly. Because they simply become law that holds over people if they don't understand themselves to be beloved ones given these commands by God. And I, I just think that distinction is, is really important. This, this is a beautiful, we call it a commandment, it's an invitation. It's an invitation by God to say, I, I'm adopting you as my people. And I don't want you to replace me with stuff that you conjure up. I want to have a real relationship with you now and forever. Can we please make that happen? And if we as people of God just go post that up somewhere on our Facebook wall and people come and they think they understand what that means without hearing the invitation of a loving God wanting to have a relationship with them, they by definition from the start misunderstand it, the spirit of this. And, and I think it's invitational and positive. And, and I think that the only way you get there is if you start with, I am Yahweh, I am your God. And, and if you start there, the rest of it flows naturally. Hey, we want to thank you for listening to this broadcast. We're grateful for the support and the connections, the relationships we get to make through some of these offerings. We hope that they've been helpful. We know that there are lots of choices that you have, lots of things you can listen to. We want to make you aware of some of what we're doing, and we greatly appreciate you being a part of it. Absolutely. We want to just thank you for being one of our audio podcast listeners. It's amazing to have you with us in the midst of our conversations. Of course, I hope you know that you can find the whole archive of all of these conversations at pastortalk.co. We would love for you to join us there. You can find options for subscribing by email. You can easily share things there with other people who you think might appreciate uh, recordings like this. And of course, we just want to welcome you if you're ever interested in joining us for the video podcast. You can do that on YouTube. It is youtube.com slash FPC Spirit Lake. There you can comment and engage with us. Or if you would prefer to do that uh, without going to YouTube, you can actually just click the link in the description of this podcast where you will be able to send us a form and information and, and reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you and engage in conversation with you. Thanks again for taking time to be with us. We look forward to our next conversation and can't wait to see you then.